Today's reading is from Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you all and uh, spending time in God's Word, uh, hearing from Him and, and seeing how this affects our life as God's people today. Uh, as was just read, we're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 5, verses uh, 10 through 15. If you are following along in one of our pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 181, I believe. And I really do encourage you, as I do each time I preach, to follow along as we work through this passage. That's going to be particularly important this morning. Because we're going to be spending time not just in the passages uh, read for us just uh, here, but also in the surrounding context. There's a lot going on in this particular uh, story, and so I really want us to see how it all connects so that as you read God's Word for yourself or as you think about what God is teaching us, you'll see how God's Word is all thrusting toward this particular point that we're going to be dwelling on and thinking about uh, this morning. So as you guys are turning there again on page 181, let me give you just a quick little bit of background information about the book of Joshua so we can kind of understand what's going on. So the book of Joshua uh, begins with the death of Moses. And Moses, as obviously many of us know, was the person that God had called to lead the children of Israel out of the superpower that was enslaving them, Egypt. And so as God called Israel out of Egypt, he was beginning to fulfill the promise he had made to their father Abraham, that he was going to be with them as their God and give them the land of Canaan as this promised land. And the generation that came out of the Exodus, they were rebellious and they were unbelieving in heart. And so as they came to the edge of the promised land and prepared themselves to receive God's promise, they rejected it in their unbelief. And God cursed them and put them back in the wilderness and had them walk for 40 years until every person whose heart was filled with unbelief, every rebellious member of that generation died, including Moses. And there's a story that goes along with that. But as Moses has now died, God turns to Joshua and his generation and begins to prepare them to receive the promises that he has made to Abraham, to receive the land of Canaan uh, as where he will dwell with his people. Now, it's important to understand that no circumstances have changed 
other than the 40 years wilderness. The circumstances and the challenges of the land of Canaan are still the same, and God's promises have remained. And so what we see in the book of Joshua is an, a new generation of people, a, a, a group of people standing at the edge of the promised land, asking themselves this really important question. Are we going to be a people that faithfully receives God's promises? Now, we too stand on the edge, as it were, of a promised land, of the new heavens and the new earth. We do not know when our lives are going to end, and we do not know when Christ returns, but the Scriptures teach us that both of those things need to be understood as eminent, that they could happen at any time, that God will fulfill His promises to His people, that Christ will return to fully consummate His kingdom, and all things will be made new. And so we stand every moment on the edge of this promised land, and we need to be asking ourselves that exact same question. Will we be a people that faithfully receive God's promises? And as we spend time in Joshua this morning, it, it gives me great joy to see that it is not us who claim the promises as though we are striving to establish God's kingdom, but God does all the work to prepare his people in order to receive it. And he does that primarily by calling us to worship. And so what we're going to see this morning is that God prepares us to receive his promises by calling us to a worship that does three things. The first thing that we're going to see is that God calls us to a worship that remembers his mighty acts. And he's going to call us to a worship that rehearses his great salvation, and finally to a worship that recognizes his personal presence among us. So we're going to be in, again, Joshua chapter 5, verses 10 through 15 and the surrounding context. But before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks and praise for your work on our behalf through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we read and meditate and think on your word and as your word is preached that you would be moving by your spirit among your people that we would understand and see the reality of your mighty acts that we would delight to rehearse our great salvation and that we would recognize your personal presence with us here this morning and throughout our christian life keep us from error father and may you be glorified as we delight in you in jesus name Amen. So God calls us to worship as a means by which he prepares us to receive his promises. And the first thing that he does in that worship is that he calls us to remember his mighty acts. If you look in the passage that was just read, Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, here's what it says. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. Now, I just want to focus for a second on the first portion of that verse, and it says, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, because Gilgal is a very important location for the history of God's people. At Gilgal, many, many things were done for God's people to prepare them. And so what I want us to do is quickly jump back to Joshua 4, verses 1 through 7. And I'm just going to quickly read it and show us that God prepares us to remember his mighty acts by giving us a sign 
and prompting a testimony. So as we read Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, keep in mind that God is giving his people a sign in order to prompt a testimony so that we would remember his mighty acts. It says this in, in uh, 4, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord said, Take twelve men of the people from each tribe a man and command them, Joshua, saying, Take twelve stones from here, the river Jordan, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. And when your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall tell them, The waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So we see that God gives his people a sign in order to prompt a testimony so that they will always remember his mighty acts on their behalf. See, God commands Joshua to grab 12 men and appoint them to go into the river Jordan as it has been cut off and dry land appears so that they can walk as their ancestors did before them, across dry land and into the promise that God was giving to them. And so each of these stones is representing a different tribe, that every single tribe of Israel is going to be included in this memorial sign. And the reason that God commands Joshua to do this is because he knows that as people look at these 12 stones stacked up high on the opposite side of the Jordan, they're going to be prompted to ask the question in, pre, in, in later generations, what do these stones mean? This question is going to demand an answer from God's people, and so that answer is going to perpetuate a testimony generation after generation of what God had done, both at the Jordan River in Joshua's generation and reminding them of what God had done at the Exodus through the Red Sea. I'm not going to read it, but if you look over in verses 23 and 24, God makes that connection for us. He says, as we look at these stones, let's remember what God did at the Jordan River and let's never forget what God did at the Red Sea, that there's this continuity between the sign that God was giving and the testimony of what God had done that God always wants to bring together. Now, this generational and, and perpetual testimony is really at the heart of what God is trying to do among us. In Psalm 78, here's, here's what uh, is written. God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel when he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. See, God gives a sign to us in order to prompt a question among us that is going to drive us to seek out an answer so that God will be glorified in each generation, that his mighty works would never be forgotten. Now, 
Why does God do this? Why, why does God see, see that it is good for him to give his people a sign? And I'm going to propose to you that he does this for two reasons. One is that God does this because he knows our frame. He knows that we are forgetful people, that often we are distracted by life and completely neglect to remember what God has done for us. God also does this because he knows that memorials and signs and testimonies have a powerful effect on us because that is how he made us. Let me prove this to you guys. When we think about the the sign that God had given to Israel, these 12 stones stacked up, we can kind of associate it with things that have happened in the past and disconnect it from experiences that we have in the present. If any one of you have been to Washington, D.C. and walked all of the monuments of the Vietnam War, of World War II. If you go to New York City and you go to the location of Ground Zero, you get a sense of what God is seeking to do among his people by giving them a sign that prompts a testimony. In my opinion, in Washington, D.C., the most palpable and powerful demonstration of this design that God has woven into us is experienced when you visit the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. If you have visited this museum, it is something that will affect you for the rest of your life. And if you haven't, I definitely encourage you to do so if you're in the area. But listen to the museum's mission. If you go onto their website and say, why have we stacked up all these rocks in Washington, D.C.? in order to perpetuate something. Here's what the museum says. The museum's primary mission is to advance and disseminate knowledge about this unprecedented tragedy, to preserve the memory of those who suffered and to encourage its visitors to reflect upon the moral and spiritual questions raised by the events of the Holocaust, as well as our own responsibilities as citizens of a democracy. Yes, here... Listen to the the depth of what this pile of rocks in Washington, D.C. is trying to accomplish. A reflection on the moral and the spiritual questions raised by such an event as the Holocaust. It's It's incredible purpose of this pile of rocks. And how much more incredible the purpose of God's signs and God's testimonies among us. So how does God help us to remember his mighty acts today? Well, there's, there's lots of different ways that this can happen. We can do it through personal testimony, right? What God has done in our lives. And we can look back and remind ourselves through journals or just as our memory stays with us, we can remember that God has been strong and faithful on our behalf to free us from sin and to give us a new life in Christ. We can look to the history of our local church here, how God has faithfully been with us these last 10 years or so to continue to perpetuate the remembering of what he has done. Or we can look to church history. But the most significant and the most important sign that God has given us is his word. That God has erected in his word a sign, a bunch of stones as it were, right? paper and ink, a testimony to what God has done for his people. And the primary testimony that God wants to draw out of the sign that is his word is he wants us to remember the historical death and resurrection 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. That as we look to the Old Testament, all those scriptures are pointing us to Jesus. And as we dive into the New Testament, all of those scriptures are pointing us back to the historical reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And so in this way, by giving us his scriptures, God is preparing us, preparing his people to receive the promises that he has given us as we worship and remember his mighty acts, as the word is read, as the word is preached, as we meditate on it, God is preparing us to receive the new heavens and the new earth. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, which is on the Great Awakening, the revival that took place in this country, here's what he said. When men are persuaded to love the Holy Scriptures more and trust their truth and divine origin more, it is certainly the Spirit of God that is at work. That is, as God is moving among us in a saving way, one of the marks of that is that our worship will be defined more and more by a desire to remember his mighty acts through reading and preaching his word faithfully. Now, what's important to understand is that this is one aspect of what God is doing, but he never intended the church to simply be a museum to the Bible. See, a museum is a place that's committed to commemorating and memorializing the past, and we should do that. But no matter how inspiring that is, God is not just asking us to remember what he has done, but he's preparing his people by calling us to a worship, not just to remember, but to rehearse the great salvation that he has accomplished on our behalf. Because to admire God's work in the past and not feel his call to fully participate in the, presence, in the present is as silly as visiting Notre Dame as a tourist. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because millions of people go to Notre Dame every year to visit this cathedral as tourists. But I want you to imagine for a second, if you were going to France and you were visiting Notre Dame's cathedral, you go in and let's just say for the sake of argument that there is a genuine and God-honoring worship service happening in that cathedral as was intended when the cathedral was designed. Let's just say for the sake of argument, that's what's happening. You walk into Notre Dame and you see people hearing God's mighty acts being preached. And you see them singing hymns and engaging in prayer. And yet, in the midst of all that, you're distracted by admiring all the architecture. And you listen to the impressive organ and all you can think is, that's a really impressive organ. Or you, you walk around with your iPhone and you take a walking tour of the history of Notre Dame and then you buy a t-shirt in the gift shop to commemorate the event. Right? You go home and you say, yeah, I visited this beautiful cathedral in France. Meanwhile, you have completely missed what was actually going on in that cathedral, what it was designed for originally. That is to rehearse the great salvation that God had accomplished for his people. The reality is, is that if you don't recognize that and feel that call, the people engaged in worship aren't missing the point. It's you. 
you're missing the point about what is going on. And so God calls his people to worship in a way that rehearses the salvation that he has accomplished on our behalf. Check out Joshua chapter 5, verses 4 through 10. The way that God does this in the Old Testament is that you see that he gives the children of Israel a choreography of their salvation. It says, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been, circum had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. So they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. You see, God shows us in these verses that as we remember what he has done on our behalf, that it's not just enough to look at the museum, as it were, of God's mighty acts, but to rehearse them as God's people. And so the choreography that God gives his people in order to perpetuate this rehearsal is circumcision and Passover. Now, what God is doing in these particular verses is what he is showing is that this generation had received the promises that God had given to Abraham, that he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people, and that as they received these promises that he had given to Abraham, as they remember the powerful deliverance from Egypt, that these acts were going to rehearse and mysteriously participate in what God had done for them in the past. In verse 9, it says, Today, to that generation, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. That the, the, the shame and the unbelief that characterized their parents was not going to characterize them as they believed God and walked in faith in the choreography that he had given them. That God had called them out of the reproach of their parents who had died in the wilderness. But now Israel was going to be prepared with a new dance of the new exodus. You see, circumcision harkened back to what God had done through Abraham. And the Passover was to harken back to what God had done to the children of Israel in Egypt. This new generation was rehearsing this great salvation that God had done for them. We too have received a choreography of our salvation. This is not a choreography for our salvation, but rather the choreography of our salvation. As Israel received circumcision and Passover, so we have received baptism and the Lord's table, communion. In, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Therefore, let no one pass judgment 
on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things, the things of the Old Testament, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So as we look to the Old Testament, we need to understand and read these things in light of Christ. That as God used circumcision and Passover to hearken back to what he had done in Egypt, he's also using those things to point forward to what he ultimately does in Christ. And so today, the reality of Christ, his death and his resurrection on our behalf, that remains the same. And so the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10 that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That God has given us a choreography to continually and perpetually rehearse the gospel. And so spiritually and mysteriously, we need to understand that as we take the bread and take the cup, that this is what is going on. We are spiritually and mysteriously participating in what God is doing among us. Now, the problem is, is that most of us don't approach church with these eyes. Instead, we approach worship and church gatherings like those who visit Notre Dame, right? We realize in those moments that what we believe is that the church isn't about humble and reverent participation as God's people, but about consuming religious products. The most obvious example of this in our culture is church hopping and church shopping that we're looking around to try to figure out which church product is going to best suit our, meet our needs. Does it have a, the program that fits my stage of life? Does it have the groups and the structure that I, that I really want to look for so that I can then settle down into this life that is consuming religious products? It defines the way we do church locally, and it defines the way we think about church digitally as well. That we're constantly looking for the silver bullet or next Christian book to answer our religious questions or to satisfy this religious consumption. And yet what God is trying to do, what he is accomplishing among his people, is to simply call us together to worship and to rehearse the great salvation that he has accomplished for us in Christ. It's so, it feels so ordinary. It feels so simple. And yet that's exactly what God is actually doing in the world. It's in this dance of receiving the sacraments by faith that we experience the first fruits of God's promise as he prepares us to receive the new heavens and the new earth. It is as if through communion, for example, that we get a taste of what the marriage supper of the Lamb will be one day. That we are mysteriously participating in what God is going to give us in the future. Now, how do we address this gross and inappropriate view of church, treating it like tourists in Notre Dame? Thankfully, 
Joshua is going to be very helpful to this effect. Because here's the situation. We don't address this gross and inappropriate view of the church by simply waiting around to find the church that fits all of our needs so that then we can give up this view and just settle down into a community. And we also don't address this by abandoning church altogether and saying, you know what, I don't need to gather with God's people. I can figure this out between me and God. Here is what Joshua teaches us. God prepares us to receive his promises by calling us to worship, not just by the word that proclaims his mighty deeds, and not just by participating and rehearsing the great salvation that he has given us, but by recognizing that he is personally present with us when we gather together as God's people. Look in chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. You see, the way that we address this inappropriate view of church is by recognizing God's personal presence among us. And we see in this passage that this happens in two ways. One, Joshua recognizes God's character and then responds appropriately. Look in, in verses 13 through 15. You see that Joshua, he readies himself to lead the nation of Israel toward Jericho, the first enemies and the first obstacle, it would seem, in receiving what God had promised them. And as he is preparing to do battle in the coming days, he turns and he sees the presence of a man standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. This is ominous image. The narrative just slows down and draws attention to all this detail. And so Joshua, approaching, as it were, someone with a loaded gun, says, hey, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And the man's response shatters all expectations. He says, neither. I'm not for you. I'm not for your enemies. This is a different thing that's going on. And, and right after he says that, Joshua realizes who he is talking to and he falls on his face in worship. So who is this commander of the Lord's army? Who is saying, I now have come? And there's two hints that we see in the text that give us clarity as to what is going on. The first thing that we need to recognize is that Joshua's response to this person is worship and that that worship is not rejected. That's really significant because the reason that it's not rejected is because this person is God himself. Angels understand that God does not share his glory with anyone. 
Check this out. In Revelation chapter 22, John experiences something overwhelmingly glorious as he sees an angel and all of its glory. It says, John, I and I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But the angel said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. That's in Revelation 22. The second clue is in how this person responds to Joshua's question. What do you say to your servant? And the response is, take off your sandals, Joshua, for the place where you are standing is holy. These are the exact same words that we see written in Exodus chapter 3 when spoken to Moses at the burning bush. In this passage, what Joshua, the narrative, is trying to pull our attention to is that God himself is present before Joshua in some form that appears as a man. Now, many scholars have concluded that the commander of the Lord's army, the man with his drawn sword in hand, is what we might call a Christophany. This is a, a, a presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. That before Christ was made man, we see in the Old Testament different examples of God himself being kind of approached as a man and yet very, very mysterious. Now, we're not going to dive into what all that means. There's plenty of resources that we can look at on your own time about the idea of a Christophany. But this demonstrates to us that the person that Joshua had seen in front of him was God himself. And as he saw God standing before him, his response was to simply fall on his face and worship. That his response was no longer to be overwhelmed by his need for the right battle strategy or his need for the right solution to his life's problems. When he was faced with the presence of God himself, he was completely overwhelmed by a sense of God's presence which responded in reverence and awe. You can sense the shift in priority as Joshua turns and asks his, the question, not, what are we going to do to defeat Jericho? But, what do you say to your servant? Now, we might be tempted to try and keep this image of God in the Old Testament, that God was not being enlisted into Jericho's or into Joshua's army, but Joshua and the nation of Israel was being enlisted into God's army. We might be tempted to try to push that and try to keep this image of God in the Old Testament, but God's word doesn't let us do that. This same image of the commander of the Lord's army defines the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 1, John saw a man walking among these lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full face. And listen to John's response to seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and the keys of death, and I have the keys of death and Hades. John's response to the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly the same response that we see in Joshua. As they are being prepared to receive God's promises, Joshua falls at the feet of God himself. And Jesus, seeing John fall at his feet, receives his worship and stretches out his hand and says, fear not. And then lists the great things that he has done in order to win John the right to be with Christ as he establishes his kingdom. Christ is the commander of the Lord's army. Christ has fought the battle and won. He has crushed the serpent. He has conquered sin and death. And so we see that Jesus is truly our warrior king, fierce in battle, and yet gloriously gentle with those with whom he has given his love and his righteousness. Imagine how that would transform the tourists of Notre Dame. If they recognize what was actually happening in worship, that Christ is present with us right now. The one who has conquered death through the cross and the resurrection in history is present spiritually with us right now. Imagine how that would transform not just the people who visit Notre Dame, but us. That is, God calls us to worship and we remember his mighty acts in the past. We rehearse his great salvation through the sacraments. But most importantly, in the midst of all that, that we recognize that God is here now. In Hebrews chapter 12, this is what the writer says about the gathering of God's people. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Church, this is where we stand right now. This is not abstract theology. This is nuts and bolts, brass tacks description of what happens when God calls his people to worship, as we heard read in the bulletin this morning. As God's word is proclaimed, as it is happening right now, 
And we are reminded of what he has done for us in history. As we rehearse his great salvation through Jesus Christ, through communion, that we're about to do. And as we recognize his personal presence with us by the Holy Spirit, that is how God is preparing us to receive his wonderful and great promises of salvation today and forever. Then in a real sense, the church gathered is a foretaste of heaven. The writer of Hebrews is going to go on to say this. If today you hear his call to worship, if you hear his voice, don't refuse him. Turn to him. Turn to Christ with all of your heart, recognizing that he is the only one worthy of worship, and he is the only one who has received the promises of God. And so as we are found in him by faith, we too will receive the new heavens and the new earth as co-heirs with Christ. Remember God's mighty acts. Rehearse God's great salvation through Christ and recognize that he is personally present with us as we are called to worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are here by your Spirit. Thank you for looking on us with mercy and grace. Help us to approach you with reverence and awe with gratitude for the mighty things that you have accomplished on our behalf. With a sense of reverence and awe as we rehearse that salvation through the sacraments that you have given us. May we no longer shop around for consuming religious products, but God, be gathered together by your word and your call to re recognize your presence among us so that you would be glorified and that we would truly be prepared to receive the promises that you have given us. Thank you for Christ who has really accomplished all that we need and received all of your promises on our behalf so that in him and through him, we too might experience the joy of the new heavens and the new earth. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.